Slam with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hello and welcome to the Robots Podcast, episode 172, the very last episode of 2014. I am Jana, and this episode will focus on dense, object-based 3D simultaneous localization and mapping, or SLAM for short. What that is will be revealed in just a few minutes. But first, let's get the news with Christine. Thank you, Jana. While drones in the United States are meeting stricter regulations, in the UK the Civil Aviation Authority, or CAA, has announced updated rules that give unmanned aerial or UAV operators permission to operate in built-up areas. Built-up areas refer to any city, town or settlement that is used for residential, industrial, commercial or recreational purposes. This update is likely because of a large number of people applying to the CAA for permission to operate UAVs on a case-by-case basis, a time-consuming process. These updates allow drones to be used lawfully for the majority of jobs a UAV operator is likely to receive. Could drones help out in restaurants? Produced by Singapore startup Infinium Robotics, the new Infinium Serve flying quadrocopter robots use the space between ceiling and above human height to deliver food and drinks to customers. Infinium enables autonomous, collision-free multiple UAV deployments in confined interior spaces by using its own flight controller on board the UAVs as well as in-house trajectory planning and model predictive control algorithms. This system is planned to be deployed at Singapore's Timber Group 12-inch Pizza and Records restaurant in late 2015. Infinium Robotics CEO Wun Yunyang said, This technology will allow human waiters to focus on higher-value tasks such as getting feedback from customers and will result in an enhanced dining experience. For more information on drone regulations and delivery, visit robohub.org. John Leonard is Professor of Mechanical and Ocean Engineering at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and he is also a member of the MIT Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Lab, CSAIL. His research focus is on navigation and mapping for autonomous mobile robots. His recent work has specifically been on dense, object-based 3D simultaneous localization and mapping, or SLAM which is essentially a way to allow robots to keep track of their own position whilst also constructing or updating a map of an unknown environment. Our interviewer Aldo spoke to Professor Leonard about his work, the successes and the remaining challenges in SLAM. Hi, welcome to Robots Podcast. Hi. Can you introduce yourself? Hi, my name is John Leonard. I'm a professor of mechanical and ocean engineering at MIT and I've worked in uh, robot navigation my whole career. i do some work with underwater robots. I've done work with self-driving cars. I've uh, done work for sensors on bicycles and in space and on uh, air vehicles. Uh, any kind of robot that needs to navigate and build maps. And, I, and I've really focused on the problem of how robots can can do can determine their position 
in the world. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me the goal and motivation behind your research? So the goal of my research is to enable robots to be autonomous, to operate independently and freely in the world, to operate robustly, uh, and to, to do that, so to say to move around the world with minimal human supervision, they need some sense of their surroundings. They need to kind of know, you know where, where they are, where they're going, how they should get there. And I tend to focus on that where am I problem. We call it localization. It's where's the robot located. That's kind of like the foundation for then building on more advanced levels of behavior in a robot. Mm-hmm. And so you work on this localization with simultaneous localization and mapping. Can you tell me a bit about what that is? So simultaneous localization and mapping, or SLAM, as we say, is how a robot can concurrently build a map of an unknown environment while using that map to determine its position. And it's a hard problem because if you had a map, you could localize relative to the map. Or if you knew your position very accurately, uh, then you could move around the world and combine the data from multiple positions to make a map. The challenge of SLAM is concurrently doing that. So you, the robot moves and its motion is uncertain, and it's trying to move to get a map of the world, but then it's using that map that it's building to estimate its position. So way back, I used to call this a chicken and egg problem, which came first, the map or the localization, the motion. And so uh, my whole career, since I started at Oxford in 1987, I've uh, as a PhD student, I've, I've focused on this mapping and localization problem, and it's been very rewarding. It's, it's led to lots of good research outcomes. Mm-hmm. So what sort of existing platforms implement SLAM? It's a really exciting time in robotics because SLAM techniques are now getting out there in the world. So, for example, Dyson just announced a, a robot vacuum cleaner that uses visual SLAM to navigate around a house. And uh, that's really the culminate. It's a real milestone to have uh, vision on a on a low cost computer product. Um, this is probably done in, in collaboration with uh, Imperial College London. I know Dyson have a have a collaboration with them, and, and there's a wonderful guy there named Andrew Davison who's a real pioneer in visual slam. And he and I see the world kind of in a similar way. We we have in a, a similar view of the challenges and the path forward to lead to more autonomous behavior. Mm-hmm. And so what are some of those challenges that you see going into? So for a robot to, to do SLAM, to do mapping and localization, there's some of the challenges relate to the computation. So how can the robot uh, map larger and larger environments and be able to process the data in real time with limited processing? One of the other big challenges is what I call we call robustness, is that the robot does the right thing, that if it it, it doesn't make mistakes in its map, or if it does make mistakes, it can correct them. Uh, existing algorithms, past algorithms, tended to be very brittle. So the robot might you know, do fine for a little while, but then a mistake will enter the map. And sometimes when one mistake happens, it can cavalcade and lead to a whole set of other mistakes. So you know, the, the broad set of issues we attack is how you can improve the robustness of, of a robot doing mapping and and. You can also, what you'd like to do is have it improve its performance over time so that it does lifelong learning about the world so that it gets better and better with time by learning more about the world and how to improve its performance and build up, in effect, a kind of a a memory of of an operating environment and then use that to execute commanded paths much more quickly than if it hadn't had a map. Mm -hmm. So this challenge sounds like it's spread across several disciplines. 
Yes. Can you talk a bit about that. Yeah. So, uh, to, well, one thing about SLAM is that all measurements are uncertain. When the robot moves, it's uncertain, and the sensor readings it takes are uncertain. Some of the measurements are spurious. Sometimes you have ambiguity as to which measurements map, match to which environments in, in the world, which elements of the world. And so, the, um, so dealing with uncertainty is endemic to this. And so there's a subfield of robotics known as probabilistic robotics. There's a famous textbook by Thrun, Burgard, and Fox that was written about nine years ago that uh, talks about the sort of the, the core techniques for, for doing this probabilistic inference in, ro in robotics. And that's what my group tends to do, that general uh, set of techniques. So uh, things like probability theory are really important and knowing about algorithms in general to be good at math. Mm -hmm. um, but you also need to be a good programmer because... Uh, invariably to create robot navigation and mapping and perception algorithms, you need to write a lot of good software. It needs to operate efficiently and robustly and you, uh, for example, uh, a common application that's very much in the media today is to make a self-driving car. People have probably heard of the Google self-driving car, uh, which is a, an amazing project. Also, like Mercedes, Daimler have a fantastic self-driving car demo they did last year. And to create such a system, you need sensors, you need you know, cameras, lidars, radars, uh, and you. But you also need very good algorithms, very good computer programs uh, that the programmers uh, create and then test and improve and evaluate out in the real world. So, in essence, it's good math and good programming coming together with sensors that interact with the physical world. Mm -hmm. Now, in your research that you're presenting at this conference, you're doing a object-based SLAM versus feature-based SLAM. Can you talk a bit about the differences there? So one of the age-old questions in mobile robots is how do we represent the world? And there have been many different representations proposed, and the uh, some are metrical, so you sort of... Imagine like having a tape measure and going around the world and measuring the width of doors or, or you know, the length of, of, of walls and mm -hmm. the, the size of obstacles. And so we do need to use metrical representations, and that can sometimes lead to very low-level representations where we have lots and lots of information about the world. And other types of representations are topological representations, like a kind of a route map. If you think mm -hmm. about the famous map of the London subway, which you know, shows the the different colored subway lines, the tube lines going from, you know, connecting the different stations. That's that's been a distortion of rea of the reality in the in the real world. But it's it's useful for a human to say get from one station to another in the tube network. Well, in a similar way, robots uh, use topological representations, sort of networks of corridors and, and and streets and so forth. And and so I would say predominantly in robotics, we've used metrical and topological representations. Uh, you know, mostly over the last 20 years. But recently, the potential to use what I would call an object-based representation where you really represent the world in terms of things like chairs and doors and desks and cars and fire hydrants and lampposts, any object. And so if we... Object recognition is a really difficult challenge in computer vision. And there's been a lot of progress, but still challenges. But if you if you hypothesize that we could have some pretty good performance in object recognition, and we can develop techniques that can accurately map and measure the 3D structure of objects, 
then recent research has suggested a path where the robot you know, builds up on the metrical layer in a representation of the world in terms of objects that's more like, like introspection is dangerous, but how people might think they might navigate uh, around the world. So I'd love to have a robot that really could understand the world in terms of objects and ultimately interact with them, move them, manipulate them, change the world, and, and that's uh, what we'd like to do. Now, this sounds like something that cloud computing might be related to. This is sort of like Siri outsourcing a lot of the computation. Do you think that's something you'll be pursuing? I think so. The, the availability of the cloud and the availability of lots of data, um, what's known as, say, deep learning, for example, and, and computer vision, it's something that I'm still trying to get my head around. What does it really mean to have access, say, to the compu computational resources of a Google or an Amazon? But if uh, I, I guess I'm I'm kind of torn because on the one hand I want to I want to leverage these capabilities to make better and better and more capable robots. On the other hand, I I think the canonical paradigm of you turn a robot on, it doesn't know much, if anything, about the world, and it can move around and and acquire the information it needs to do a task in a, in a more unsupervised way. That's appealing to me as a research uh, project, so that mm -hmm. that's ultimately going to lead to robust autonomy. But when you look at the performance of modern object recognition systems and the availability of lots of computation in the cloud, it does suggest a, an, an alternative where whenever the robot's stuck or whenever, whenever the robot's in a new situation, it can kind of, quote, ask for help and can mm -hmm. sort of pull knowledge from the cloud. For example, a few years ago, a Famous robotics professor Dieter Fox, uh, who was one of the authors of that Thrunbergard and Fox book I mentioned, he he said to me, you know, once one robot recognizes a Coke can, every robot should be able to recognize a Coke can. Mm -hmm. And so, how do you have that transferable skill from one real-world situation to another? I think that's that's an interesting possibility, but it but doesn't exist yet. And so, the alternative to cloud computing that you were saying is some sort of embodied intelligence where the robot actually learns on its own. It's like a developmental process. Yeah, I think that's a good way to describe it. I think that if you are limited in the processing you have on a robot, say it's a drone that's flying with a limited payload, limited battery life, and it doesn't have strong connectivity to the, to the cloud and to other, other robots or people, then it has to sort of make decisions in real time with limited resources. You can probably say we're, we're kind of at a fork in the road where there's two different paths. One is where the cloud will just run wild and, and the capability to build huge databases and maybe map the entire world and, and, and high-quality 3D information. Maybe that will happen in the next 20 years. Maybe that will be viable to someone like Google. Uh, uh, that's one path is where there's a huge reservoir of prior information that's available uh, through the connection to the cloud. But another path is this more resource-constrained path where we're really caring about the processing level, you know, the power consumption, the connectivity that a mobile agent would have, and it has to make decisions itself. So that suggests an alternative where part of the estimation problem for, for doing things like mapping is also the active control of the motion of the robot so that it can optimize its resources and it can mm -hmm. gain its uh, the best information about the environment to achieve a particular task. Going back to your research, are using object-based SLAM in dense environments. Can you talk a bit about that? Well, where the dense part comes from is that 
there's this wonderful new algorithm called Connect Fusion, which was developed by Microsoft Research in the UK and Imperial College, uh, in which the researchers could basically wave a Connect from you know from the Xbox, uh, wave a Connect around the room and reconstruct a th- dense 3D model of it. So the density means that we're we're building these volumetric representations where we're really estimating the geometry of of objects and arbitrary shapes. In, at a very fine-grained resolution. And that's contrasted with what I would call a sparse representation of the world might just abstract away, say, for example, representing a room with straight lines uh, you know, at doorways and, and uh, other places. And so you, in a, fe- in a sort of sparse feature-based model, you try to simplify the representation as much as possible to just have key distinctive elements that can, say, be tracked or, or recognized later. In a dense representation, you're really trying to paint out the world in, in, in rich detail down to you know very, very high level in order of millimeter resolution. And so the exciting thing about Connect Fusion and its extensions is that using modern graphical processing units, GPUs, you can do a sort of dense volumetric processing to create really rich 3D models. So many people have probably seen now you, there are services where you can scan a person and print out a model of them. It's very much related to that, but consider much longer camera trajectories where a robot going through the world is accruing lots of navigation, or what we call dead reckoning error, as it, as it travels. And with uh, collaborators, what we've shown last year, a wonderful guy named Tom Whelan, who's doing a PhD in Ireland, created this thing called Continuous, which is an extension of Connect Fusion that basically adds SLAM to Connect Fusion to let you traverse long distances and do what we call loop closing, which is how you correct the error when you come back to, say, where you started in executing a loop-like trajectory. So with the what's emerging to be possible is that you have the rich Connect Fusion-based representation of the world, which can allows at least a user to see chairs and other obst- obstacles in, in very rich detail, and that's connected to the machinery of doing SLAM that we've learned about over the last 25 to 30 years of how you represent uncertainty and combine information from multiple vantage points. So the excitement I have is to combine the the sort of traditional SLAM methods with the new dense techniques enabled by basically really fast gaming laptops and then being able to really paint out 3D models of the world. So this is pretty cool. Yeah, I think so. What are some applications of being able to paint out the world? Uh, Google self-driving car, among other things? Well, I think certainly the Google self-driving car is is just the major project uh, that's happening in mobile robotics today, that it's it's just amazing. Uh, I actually had the good fortune to, to ride in a Google car this summer in July, and uh, I was in the backseat of the car with one of my grad students, and then one of Google's top programmers came along for the ride. And uh, the... Uh, we drove around Mountain View for know, about 10 or 15 minutes, and uh, I was very impressed with the car. I felt total confidence in the car's motion and the ability to track cars and bicycles and pedestrians and see traffic lights and stop at railroad crossings. It was quite sophisticated in its behavior. Uh, I'm, I, I, and I must say that you know when I when I rode in the Google car, I, there was a picture of myself and, and my student Ross in front of the car, and I posted it on Facebook, and I said I felt like I was on the beach at Kitty Hawk. You know, it really had that amazing uh, feeling to it. 
But on the other hand, as a researcher in, in mobile robotics, I see all that need, is left to be done with the Google car. And so I think that it might take longer than people realize because the mapping issue is a challenge. For example, if the world changes, Google uses a map that needs to be, uh, it needs to be pretty accurate, at least in terms of how the road surface looks, to do the localization to position the car very accurately. And so if, say, a road was being repaved and the surface of the road was removed, all the lane lines and everything were gone, that might be an obstacle. Another challenge is is uh, how you interpret gestures of people, crossing guards, traffic cops, other drivers, the sort of waves and nods and winks that when drivers let you pull out. So gauging their intentions of what they're yeah. about to do, like if they're about to cross the street in front of you, that kind of thing? Is that yeah, what you mean? I think actually Google's people and bicycle tracking is very impressive. So that's something that they've... They've, they've really done some nice work on. I think maybe more, I'm more concerned by things like a left turn across high speed traffic where you, you may need to make a, like a snap judgment decision. Like, is it safe or not safe? Perhaps there's a situation where the road might curve. There might be occlusions. There might be trees. There might be, uh, or things like adverse weather. So, um, you know, the, the Google technical team have given some talks where they've been pretty clear about what some of the challenges are and, I think maybe the question at stake is, what is the timeline? Is it going to be five years? Is it going to be 25? Is it going to be 50 years? I believe they said 2018 uh, to give it to manufacturers. Yeah, so, so I think that if uh, they've got an amazing team, Chris Armson's a visionary, and I, I kind of think that Chris is, he refuses to believe that it's impossible. So I say, hey, this is, what you're trying to do is not possible. He'll refuse to believe it. And and we'll go as far as you can under the assumption that it's not impossible. I think that the, the the progress is great, but there are some big challenges left. What are some of the future goals of your research? Okay. Well, if, uh, if you think about how we deal with when the world changes, so if you have a, an accurate map, you can navigate a, a robot very precisely. But what if the world changes? So how do we do what we call dynamic mapping, how you on the fly, how the robot might detect that the world changed due to say, temporary construction or you know, some, some longer-term changes, and then how you would update the representations online, accounting for the change and still operating robustly. So that, and, and that's one sort of level. But at another level, you can say that changing environments can actually be a good thing in the sense that if, if things move in the world, it's sort of one way to define what an object is. An object is something that's capable of moving. And so you can imagine a robot that could learn about objects in the world through its lifelong operation of getting better and better each day. Uh, Ten years ago, I had I wrote a little one-page description of this concept I had called Robot Google. Imagine having a search engine for the physical world, like the, in the same way that Google knows what is where on the Internet. Could a robot know what is where in the world and be able to answer search queries, like where are my keys, where is, where am I, where is my, uh, my son's homework book or something, you know, and... and if you uh, had the ability to really represent the world in terms of objects and build a graph of the object locations and track their locations over time, uh, I think that would be an inherently valuable thing to basically bring search to the physical world. So it would be similar to Internet of Things. Yeah, I think that's, that's a re- related concept. Some of my colleagues at MIT call the mechanical Internet, and you know, I think that's a related concept I think one thing that I'd like to see is, is an autonomous robot. Maybe it operates the world for five or six hours a day and then plugs itself in to recharge overnight, connects to the cloud. And then I use this sort of 
notion of dreaming overnight that you could reprocess the data acquired in that day and try to put all the pieces together and build an ever richer, more uh, functional view of the world, making connections from what happened from one day to the next, sort of consolidating long-term memories. Do you have any advice for researchers starting out? So my advice for researchers starting out is is uh, really math. You need to be good at math, and you need to be good at programming. And you need to learn how to rapidly install packages. I call it app get install PhD. You know, like if you think about, you know, operating in a Linux environment, which most of our robots do, and the ability to get, you know, when people generously give their code away, say, as open source, and, and they've done something, and you can reuse that, that's saving you a lot of time. So in my lab, we've actually given a lot of our data sets and a lot of our code away over the years. We've developed underwater robots, and we developed some autonomy software, something called Moose, M-O-O-S, was developed by Paul Newman, who's a professor now at Oxford. He was a postdoc in my group, and he developed this software, Moose, that is able, it's a, it's a pretty easy learning curve way to develop autonomy software for robots, especially underwater robots, it tends to work really well for Another thing we developed was something called LCM, Lightweight Communication and Marshalling, where the software tools we used, our students built for our DARPA Urban Challenge vehicle. Back in 2007, we competed in the DARPA Urban Challenge, built a robot car. We came in fourth place. It was kind of a distant fourth place. Um, and Carnegie Mellon and Stanford were first and second. Virginia Tech was third. But we created a lot of valuable tools that are now being used in quite a lot of robots. And so if if you can use tools like... Uh, and on, another one is ROS, which we don't use as much in my ROS, the robot operating system, which is, is also in very widespread use. And if you can learn the software programming capabilities and the ability to interconnect different pieces and use the work developed by others effectively, that gives you a better foundation to then build your own uh, contributions. I very much believe, you know, what's attributed to Newton, you know, if I've seen further, it's because I've stood on the shoulders of giants. You know, that it's it's only by working together as a community, publishing our results, and then sharing the information that we make it easier for newer students to come, get up to the current state of the art, and then build their contributions on top of that. And wrapping up, what do you believe is the future of robotics? Let's see, I think that robotics has a bright future because the need is so great there in society. There are so many, uh, there are a lot of great needs, for example, the aging population, and, the, for example, the large number of uh, injuries and fatalities and, and traffic accidents, you know, it sort of suggests that if we can do better localization mapping, sensing, tracking, situational awareness, say for cars or, you know, robots that might interact, help people, um, work with the disabled, assistive technologies, I think that the world is ready for better robotic capabilities. On the other hand, I think that it's easy with robots to think they're doing more than they are. And, uh, you know, a pessimist might say we haven't actually made that much major progress in the field, say, in the 27 years I've been, since I started my PhD, since I've been in this field. And I think that the reality is that there are certain ways in which roboticists kind of cheat, like that they make the problem easier. For example, using motion capture systems mounted in the ceiling to enable, say, flying vehicles. Most flying vehicles use motion capture systems. Uh, a lot of robots are teleoperated by people, and they might not be able to do the same performance if they were autonomous. And another sort of trick or a technique people use to simplify tasks is to use a very precise prior map, for example, of what the road surface looks like. 
there's a great paper here from Michigan at this conference about you know using a camera that looks at a laser-generated map to localize a car, to drive a car. And it's kind of what Google are using in the self-driving car project. And so maps are very powerful, and we can show some great things with robots using very accurate maps. But then, as I said earlier, if the maps are not accurate, if they, if they map and the world don't match, that could lead to a problem. So I think that if you try to, you know, yes, the future potential is great, but I think that some of the big problems are still unresolved. I think our ability to physically interact with the world autonomously is still in its infancy. We don't have, we need better robots, we need better tactile sensing, and we need better perception. And that's one thing that excites me about what I call the object-based dense understanding of the world is, is to really be able to, you know, make detailed measurements of cups and other objects that a robot might, might pick up. So then guide intelligent hand placement and there's things like dealing with soft objects and liquids and compliant objects. It, the real world is very messy and, and, and tricky. So there still are a lot of big challenges to work on. Thank you. You're welcome. And that was it for the final podcast of 2014. We hope you've enjoyed this year's podcasts and wish you an amazing start to the new year. If you fancy a look back on what we've covered this year, just visit our website at robotspodcast.com. You can also take a peek at our dedicated YouTube channel to see this year's fabulous entries to our festive season greetings competition. We'll be back in January. Until then, goodbye. Slam with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics.